This, this is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission, or mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. Ready. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Harlan Hill back in, filling in for Buck while he's on assignment down at the border. And as always, I want to thank him for trusting me with his, his microphone tonight. And on this Tuesday, the 15th of January, 2019, God, do we have a lot of ground to cover. There's lots of breaking news from the confirmation hearing uh, on the Hill today for the in, uh, incoming Attorney General William Barr to this critical Brexit vote and, and much more. I mean, this week and this year really is off to a blistering start. But to start the show, I wanted to address the Democrats who elected to go to Puerto Rico to play on the beach and drink with lobbyists instead of getting to work for you, instead of working to get the government back up and running. I'm going to talk to them directly. Shame on you guys. Shame on you guys. President Trump, the president of the United States, has been sitting in the Oval Office through the holidays. He didn't go spend time with his family. He didn't leave Washington like you guys did. Through the new year, too. Well, y'all were gallivanting all over the country. Are you kidding me? You guys are still doing it? You're going to Puerto Rico? On the beach? I'm, I'm thinking of Senator Menendez, that criminal. On the beach, hanging out with that blonde girl. I'm sure you guys saw the pictures. I mean, this guy's out of control. I mean, if you've read anything about him, uh, you know, uh, at, at least she was of age. But while they're playing politics, while these Democrats are playing politics, politics they just want to blame the president for this shutdown entirely. While they won't make the smallest compromise, these congressional Democrats won't make the smallest compromise to get this thing back up and running again, to get 800,000 Americans, 800,000 government workers, their paychecks, including TSA workers, including uh, air traffic controllers, including Secret Service agents. They're playing politics with these people's lives, all while they blame the president, who's sitting there waiting and even today, congressional Democrats refuse. They're boycotting a meeting at the White House. They don't want to talk about it anymore. All he's wanting is a measly $5 billion. And in the context of all the money that Democrats just flush down the drain all the time and have for decades, they can't cough this up for a real solution to a crisis at the border? Are you kidding me? I'm sure we'll, we'll get a lot of footage and Buck will have a lot of firsthand experience about what it's like down there because he's down right now. Um, at the border in San Diego, uh, between San Diego and Tijuana. I mean, I, I can only imagine what he's seeing right now. But this problem is out of control. And these Democrats returned from their holiday in Puerto Rico over the weekend. They said they were working, but we had all these pictures of them at the beach and the bar and everything else. Not to make some serious concession and get government back up and running. Not to go to the White House and sit down with the president and say, hey, how can we strike a deal? No, they returned to the Hill to viciously tear into a proven attorney general nominated by President Donald Trump to lead the Justice Department, William Barr. And that's despite the fact that Mr. Barr on the Hill today pledged to allow the Mueller probe to move forward and to be reported, the findings of the Mueller probe to be reported without any interference by him or the White House. I mean, this guy couldn't have gone any far. He's bending over backwards to make them happy, to reassure them, listen, I'm just going to administer and, 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 and stand by the rule of law I'm not looking to tip the scales either way. That's not enough for them. You know, him 
over the last year writing op-eds saying that he doesn't think the president's in the wrong, that there's no evidence of collusion, all these things that are absolutely true, um, Democrats tried to use against him today. And they want him to recuse himself. I mean, it's just, it's just so disingenuous. They know, they know better. They know better. But it, this isn't governing to them. This is a circus. This is a political ploy as they're all announcing their intentions to run for 2020. That's all this is. Lots of grandstanding. So I wanted to play a clip from it today so you could hear Mr. Barr in his own words. And I think you'll be impressed. If confirmed, I will not permit partisan politics, personal interests, or any other improper consideration to interfere with this or any other investigation. I will follow the special counsel regulations scrupulously and in good faith. And on my watch, Bob will be allowed to finish his work. My goal will be to provide as much transparency as I can consistent with the law. When his report comes to you, will you share it with us as much as possible? Consistent with the regulations and the law, yes. I am going to make as much information available as I can consistent with the rules and regulations that are part of the special counsel regulations. I'm in favor of as much transparency as there can be consistent with the rules and the law. See a case where the president could uh, claim executive privilege? In theory, if if uh, there was executive privilege uh, material that to which an executive privilege claim could be made, it might, con- you know, it, it, it someone might raise a claim of executive That would be pretty difficult following the U.S. versus Nixon. And Mr. Giuliani said the president should be able to correct the Mueller report before any public release. So in other words, he could take this investigative report, put his own spin on it, and correct it before it's released. Do you commit that would not happen if you were attorney general? That will not happen. Joining me now to discuss is Victoria Tunsing, a former Justice Department official and a former chief counsel to the Senate Intelligence Committee. So she's got experience both at the Justice Department and on the Hill. Victoria, thank you for joining. Oh, what fun. I I listened to the hearings today. By the the way, I do want to take issue with you. This is not a circus, uh, Ray, the Democrats. This is about power, and that's what it is. Yeah. They miss their power. Hmm. I think you're right. I think you're right. But in, in, in the process, they've turned this into a circus. So maybe we'll split the hair there. Now we're in agreement. <laughs> okay, there you go. <laughs> so, uh, I, but this gives me some serious pause because uh, I'll be honest, as, as a Trump loyalist, which is what I am, you know, I didn't like some of the things that Mr. Barr said today. But he bent over backwards to accommodate Democrats and say, look, I, I'm going to stay above this. I'm not going to interfere. I'm not going to allow this report that comes out of the Mueller probe to be edited, you know, so, you know, whatever yeah, can Rudy be. Didn't, Rudy really didn't mean editing it. He thought he wanted to look and see if there he could. There were things that would be in dispute that he right. could bring back. This is done all the time. Uh, it was done under the independent counsel law uh, when there was a required report. And everybody who was a, a target or a, a defendant in the case was allowed to review the report and come back with uh, saying, hey, here's a mistake here. Well, and just, so just to clarify that I oh, gotcha, gotcha, 100 percent. And so, I mean, what was your read on Mr. Barr today? I mean, how, how did you think his performance was? He was excellent. I mean, and Joe and I supported him. My husband, Joe Geneva and law partner, and I supported him uh, from the get go. 
we uh, we think that he was just he's the perfect person. Look, he gave where he had to give. He, he there was no way he could come there and say no. I'm going to stop the Mueller investigation this minute. In fact, for all of us who support Trump, that would not be a good thing. Mueller's would would be in in glory if that happened because he's got nothing. So then he can say, um, like he's wont to do, oh my, they interfered with me. I really had all this stuff. Yeah, make him take it to the end and show he has nothing. Well, I mean, and that's that's the frustrating bit here. I mean, so obviously the, the special counsel has not been around for um, you know three years, but this talk of Russian collusion and these these accusations predate the election of President Trump. I mean, they started to plant the seeds of doubt to undermine the credibility of the incoming administration even before election day. I mean, I can remember being on CNN plot. and yeah, yeah, Joan, I've been calling it a brazen plot. Ever since they went after George uh, Papadope, as I call him, because he was so <laughs> stupid to lie about something that was not criminal. Yeah. Um, so- uh, and I want to take issue. I mean, it just it drives me crazy. Pat Leahy you did the clip. And he says, oh, well, somebody would have a hard time in the report claiming executive privilege after U- U.S. versus Nixon. He doesn't even understand this basic Supreme Court decision. The Supreme Court in that decision said in a criminal case where there's an an ongoing trial, if the White House has information that is material, it has to be turned over. They didn't say when the media are crying out to know what's in a report, there's no executive privilege. Right. I'm embarrassed. Right. Pat Leahy. Well, Pat knows better, doesn't he? Probably not. Kind of slurring his words. <laughs> so, I mean, so where, where does this go? I mean, when is Mueller going to wrap this thing up? I mean, are, are we talking about another couple of years of this? Is this going to get dragged into the, the no, 2020? No, I'm, I'm told with, within a month. I'm told February. Really? Those are my sources. Wow. Yeah. You know, it's, he's got to at a certain point. I mean, what Rod Rosenstein, may he be forever damned, uh, did by authorizing a special counsel on a, for a counterintelligence basis, not a criminal, it's just what the regulations require, has has harmed the presidencies ever since um, January of 2017, and it's got to stop. It's got to stop. Is this the new and normal? I I, is this that. the? I mean, so as we move, eventually, you know, President Trump will not be president anymore. I mean, you know, 2024. Um, hey, so. I mean, but is this the new normal in how we handle um, incoming presidents? I mean, will there be efforts no, no, to no, delegitimize? No. Oh my God, no! This is not. This don't. This will all go away if a Democrat is is elected. Right. I mean, when you were, you're talking about the Democrats, you know, gallivanting Pelosi off to Hawaii, the others off to Puerto Rico. I'm sure CBS led with that, right? Uh, not at all. I mean, they count on the, they count on the mainstream media uh-huh. to be complice, complicit. That's right. That's what it's all about. Complacent and complicit. So, I mean, so, I, but I, I, you know, I'm not so sure that I believe that. I mean, I think that there's going to, there will be elements of the Republican side of the aisle that it will seek retribution for what Democrats have done here. And I'm not saying that that's a good thing at all. I mean, the way that, that, that they have for their own political expedience delegit- attempted to delegitimize a president of the United States and undermine the very institutions of our democracy is unacceptable. But I fear, but I fear that there will be some people that seek retribution and that will fall for the same trap that the Democrats have. Well, do you really think Republicans are capable of that? That's why they're in the minority. They didn't act like they were in the majority when they were. And now they're not even acting like the fighters the Democrats are. 
Well, Stephen King, and and I have no great love for Stephen King. I always thought he was rather off base. But they allowed him to be whatever the vote was today, whatever the Democrats took over. And yet the woman whose name I don't have in my brain right now from Michigan, who oh, yeah. the Muslim said a vile, yeah. vile thing about the president and is clearly anti-Semitic. Nothing, nothing. Where are, I mean, what's wrong with them? Right. I mean, what's wrong? And she had a, 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 a devout, um, you know, anti-Zionist. Um, at one of her parties, anti-Semitic, and, yeah, and so, absolutely. Yeah, and and they don't and they don't want to go after her. There, there should have been that should have been joined. Yeah, they said right, all right. Stephen King did a no-no, but here's somebody else who did, and it's one of yours. Let's well, take the vote. And, and to your point, I mean, you know, if you had uh, a fervent uh, anti-Semitic at a Trump party, I mean, it would be wall to wall on CNN <laughs> for weeks, right? <laughs> I mean, and there's not there has not been a single tweet. We confirmed this earlier. Not a single tweet from CNN, not a single report on the fact that that anti-Semitic uh, gentleman attended her, her, uh, her party. Not a single one. No. And this is why it w- if we just elect a Democrat president, this will all go away. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I fear that you're right. Anyway, so, Victoria, I'm going to bring you right back after this break. Um, everyone stick around. Uh, we've got a lot more to discuss, lots of breaking news. The phone lines are open, so give us a call at 844-900-2825. That's 844-900-BUCK. Stay tuned to the Buck Saxton Show. In the midst of all the whining coming from the left, I mean, it's just crazy these days, right? They're chasing people out of restaurants, yelling at you in the coffee shop, acting like a bunch of maniacs. You have to wonder, why in the world would anyone act this way? My guess is they're just not getting their daily dose of Black Rifle coffee. I drink Black Rifle every morning. In fact, it's such delicious coffee that I'm usually a guy that likes a little con leche in my coffee. But guess what? I drink it black because it's Black Rifle for one. And also, this is delicious small batch roast to order coffee. All right. I am a Silencer Smooth Blend guy, but their entire catalog of different beans and blends is amazing. Black Rifle is roast to order and is guaranteed fresh right to your door. Nothing cures a bad attitude like starting your day with the most American coffee ever, Black Rifle Coffee. Visit BlackRifleCoffee.com slash buck. Receive 15% off your order. That's BlackRifleCoffee.com slash buck for 15% off. BlackRifleCoffee.com slash buck. Welcome back. You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show. I'm Harlan Hill filling in for Buck. The phone lines are open, so give us a call at 844-900-2825. That's 844-900-BUCK. President Trump has asked Congress for for $5.7 billion to build a wall along our southern border. And he said that, if necessary, he may declare a national emergency to act unilaterally and that he has the authority to do so. He's walked it back a little bit, saying that it shouldn't be necessary, that Congress should just act and uh, help him build this wall together. But as is the case, any time a president attempts to circumvent Congress and act unilaterally, there's a legal question about whether he should do so and whether he can do so. I personally think that President Trump has a very strong argument to make here and that he does have the authority to act unilaterally. But I want to talk to an expert on this um, to help me break down some of the specifics of it. Uh, So I'm welcoming back Victoria Tunsing, a former Justice Department official and former chief counsel to the Senate Intelligence Committee. So Victoria, first of all, can the president do this? I mean, if if the shutdown goes on much further and the president just you know gets fed up and says, you know what, I'm going to use my full rights as, as the president of the United States, I'm going to exercise my full rights, uh, d- does he have the legal authority to go in and build this wall under a national emergency? I think he would ultimately prevail. The problem is, and the reason why he's trying to work out something, 
is because it would take so long. And, and if he can work out an agreement, it's not going to go for months, even a, over a year, uh, to get to the Supreme Court because we have this new phenomena occurring, Harlan, and that is a judge out sitting out in Hawaii who doesn't know squat about national security can issue an injunction for the whole country. I think it is against uh, the judiciary. I think that the Supreme Court is going to talk about it at some point, but they have not addressed that issue yet. Uh, see, my, the bottom line is that I think that the president at some point has to say, until the Supreme Court tells me to do X, mm-hmm. I'm going to do Y. Right. And how, how long could that injunction last? Well, until the, the Supreme Court hears it. Got it. Got and it. when the Supreme Court hears it, that's the law. But for one judge, you know, 400 and some other judges are sitting around the country to say, okay, here's my ruling, and that, that goes for the, the whole country. It's, it's bizarre. And, and the reason that the, the left coast, as we call it, California and all of that, the Ninth Circuit, is liberal is because the, the practice has been in the Senate. I don't want to get too far down in the weeds, but, but basically that the Democratic senators have to approve of the judicial nominee even when it's a Republican uh, right. president because now, of the, uh, the Senate works. And so they've gotten all liberal judges out there. Right. Well, and, and how does how does the Supreme Court telegraph that they will take up this case? I mean, does the Chief Just, Justice explicitly say that he'll take it on? No, 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 no. Okay, so how do they telegraph, telegraph that? It, it has to wind its way. Usually, usually, mm-hmm. um, it has to go through the circuits, and, and and then there has to be a conflict in the circuits, or it becomes something that um, it, it just a ruling in the Ninth Circuit against the administration is enough to make the administration then apply to the Supreme Court for certiorari. Got it. Cert, as we call it. But the, the Supreme Court doesn't signal nothing. Right. I wouldn't think so. I don't think so. So, I mean, so the president is really in a hard place because if he does go that route, I mean, it, it, it pretty much destines him to the fact that nothing will happen with this wall for, you know, the duration of his first term. I mean, this will probably take some time to find its way, um, you know, to th- through to the court. Um, so uh, and in, even beyond that, I mean, there are going to be all sorts of, I mean, challenges on environmental grounds and, and others uh, to any wall that he seeks to build. And so I'm in a domain, yeah, domain as well. Yeah. Process property along there might say, I don't want you to build this. Yeah. So it's difficult in and of itself. So you know? I guess my takeaway is that if you're being pragmatic and, and forecasting here, uh, it's unlikely. And quick response here, because we only have a minute left. Uh, do you think the, the wall is going to get built in the next couple of years? Boy, he's a pretty determined guy. I, I think he's going to find a way one way or the other. But the Republicans in Congress have got to get smarter. They've just got to get a little more cojones. Yeah. Um, it's frustrating. I mean, they, they we, sh- we should have started this in the first term. It will be the legacy of Paul Ryan that he didn't take this on, um, you know, on day one of the Trump administration. Um, but it's the it's what we have to live with. Anyway, we'll be right back after this quick break with more. The phone lines are open, so give us a call at 844-900-2825. That's 844-900-BUCK. Stay tuned to The Buck Sexton Show. Welcome back. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show. I'm Harlan Hill filling in for Buck. Phone lines are open. Give us a call at 844-900-2825. That's 844-900-BUCK. I was struck over the weekend by reports in the New York Times of the FBI opening a counterintelligence probe into President Trump, seemingly in retaliation for the firing of FBI Director James Comey. This is concerning because you should never have a law enforcement agency 
targeting someone um, you know, without any cause and without any material reason for the investigation. And I think that that was as evidenced by the fact that um, also as part of this, this New York Times report, um, it, there was a revelation that Mueller took over this uh, probe when the special counsel was instated and decided not to chase this any further. So uh, it's clear that there wasn't much substance to this probe to begin with. And so that's why I wanted to bring in an expert to break this all down for me. And that's Ryan Morrow, the director of intelligence at the Clarion Project. Ryan, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. So, Ryan, I mean, this story, this story is bizarre. I mean, it, it doesn't make sense to me. And it, what was your take? I mean, what was your gut reaction to this when you first read it? At, my, at first, I figured that the headline must have been manipulative. Yeah. Uh, that usually uh, stories like this, there will be something buried in the story that helps it make sense, and, and it's not quite as outrageous as it sounds. Um, but I am left more confused, um, puzzled, and just overall discouraged based on what I've read uh, from the various articles about this. Now, I must say, I've had a lot of interaction with the FBI over the years since I was a teenager and all this stuff. Um, I, I know a lot about counterintelligence and foreign influence operations and kind of what's normal and what is not. And as a result, I am, I have not been one of these people where whenever there's a news item like this, that just comes out and just bashes the FBI or dismisses the FBI. Um, and, but then I read this and it doesn't make any sense because we were told that for a long time before this period of time, uh, when Comey was fired, there was a counterintelligence investigation about Russian influence operations targeting Trump and probably a lot of other people, but that's not in the news, um, and that's not being leaked out. Um, so how this would be new, and, and what is it about the firing of Comey and what Trump said after that that would somehow constitute new evidence to suggest that Trump is an agent of Russia, either knowingly or unknowingly, like just meaning he's just being manipulated and, and doesn't realize it, uh, there, there's no answer to what that is, what that basis is. I reviewed everything I could find on what Trump said after firing Comey that could, by some stretch, be said to be evidence that he's an agent of Russia, and I didn't find anything. The most you could ever say was is that his comments about how, oh, I fired Comey, so pressure over Russia should be alleviated, and he said that to the Russians – the most you could conceivably argue from that is that's evidence of obstruction of justice, maybe. But that's it. Well, help me understand like, how common are these counterintelligence investigations into foreign influence um, or election interference? I mean, how often are, do we see these come out of the FBI, particularly targeting politicians? <laughs> this goes on all the time. You just don't hear about it because it's classified information. It's not supposed to be part of the press. Appearing in the press, there aren't supposed to be these leaks. Um, but this is a different situation because it, there was enough open source information in addition to what was classified and leaked or not classified but still confidential and leaked um, that, that it made it into this big story and then it fit the a political narrative questioning the legitimacy of Trump's uh, election campaign and, and his victory. So it's different in terms of size and how people are reacting to it. But overall, there is 
there are ongoing FBI counterintelligence operations trying to find out what countries are bribing or influencing politicians or anyone influencing the political realm, oftentimes without the target even knowing about it. Like, not, not just colluding, but it's common for foreign governments to try to implant someone near someone that's influential to whisper lines in their ears in order to sway their opinion. Uh, so all that is common. Um, the one big question that I think keeps this going beyond what it should have been and, and why, and I agree with Andrew uh, McCarthy, who basically said that one of the key problems we have is that Trump doesn't help himself sometimes. Um, it, are these incidents where when it comes to whether it's Putin or it's Erdogan in Turkey, whatever they're putting out as their spin on world events it does seem that Trump, for a certain period of time, regurgitates those lines. He doesn't act as an agent or a puppet. He violates their will. So he's not, just, he's not acting as an agent. But there is, but I still can't, and I'm having a lot of trouble getting past the fact that when Erdogan or Putin says something, then all of a sudden Trump says basically the same thing. So right. the, the, there's some level of trust there, or there's someone near Trump who is reciting those lines that he trusts. I'm not sure what's going on there. Um, but that's a far cry from what the headlines are leading people to believe about this FBI uh, uh, thinking that Trump was some type of KGB spy. Right. Well, and i, I got to tell you, from a, a Trump supporter's perspective, this feels like the deep state, right? This feels like... Um, somewhat of a, a, a soft coup. You know, and, and, and I say that because it's not just one isolated case. I mean, you have to also look at the text messages from Peter Strzok. Um, I mean, that was yeah. infamous. I mean, there, there's, there's a pattern here. And maybe it's fair, maybe it's not fair, but from a Trump supporter's perspective, you, you feel like where there's smoke, there's fire, and there are attempts within the government by people that have been there for a long time to undermine the incoming president of the of the United States at the time, and now the the president of the United States, and that's very frustrating. What do you, what do you say to those people? I would say I agree with them. I mean, this is one of those things where, in a way, I agree with all sides and disagree a bit with all sides. Um, but fundamentally, what you said about the deep state, um, and my definition of the deep state is what's more commonly accepted, uh, which is just that there are special interests there, there are career officials in the government um, who have political ambitions, all these types of things that we've known has gone on for a long time, and then the term deep state is a way of summarizing it all. Um, and I think that when you define deep state in, the, in those terms, then, then what you're describing absolutely goes on. And if you have a lot of interaction with people in government agencies, particularly those like the State Department or the intelligence community, there is a certain level where the arrogance becomes, well, first of all, very hard to deal with, but you can tell that these are people who feel that they have been entrusted to lead the country as opposed to implement policy and privately look at themselves in the mirror and say, you know what, look at all those senators and the presidents, I'd be better than all of them. They may not say it, but you can, but you can tell. Um, so that type of arrogance and political agenda, even to the point where they don't realize it's a political agenda. I come across that in different agencies of government very frequently, and that would include the Justice Department. So those damning texts from Peter Strzok 
um, where he's even admitting, like, I don't think that there's anything here. But he's also earlier texting saying, we need to stop Trump. It's, like, not that surprising to me. Yeah, yeah. Well, before you go, I wanted to, I know you have this new project, Finding the Mountain of Moses. Uh, I know it's a new uh, film on the Exodus story. Can, can, can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, so this is an independent project, uh, completely unrelated to what we were just talking about. Um, but you can look it up on YouTube by searching Finding the Mountain of Moses or go to the website SinaiInArabia.com. And basically over the past two years, um, I've been doing some covert filming in Saudi Arabia. Wait, so you, you actually went to Saudi Arabia to shoot some of this? Yep, I took uh, three trips there. Uh, that's part of the reason I have been on Fox and, the, and these other, <laughs> other places as often because that's where I was. But um, tell me about that before. I mean, so tell me, like, yeah, what was sure. it like going to shoot a documentary about Moses in, in Saudi Arabia? How, how welcoming were the, the people of Saudi to you to film this? Well, this is what will blow your mind, because Moses is part of Islam right. in northwestern Saudi Arabia, where we found, um, well, not found, but we got evidence um, of these sites that are said to be linked to Moses and the Exodus story and really bring the story to life in a way never seen before. The Saudis all run up to you because they haven't seen an American in person. And wow. one of the first things they'll say to you is, did you know Moses was here? Did you know that Moses and the Yahud, the Jews, were here? And they just love talking about it and want the world to know about it. They're proud of the fact that there is a significant Jewish history in northwestern Saudi Arabia. Really? But, yeah, but the problem is, is that the archaeological sites, most of them, are covered up by the Saudis with fences and police patrols. And so, until now, there hasn't really been compelling video and photo evidence out there for people to see. But once you watch the film, if you read the book of Exodus in the Bible, you'll be able to envision most of the events described now. What did you, what did you uncover? I mean, what were the big revelations? I mean, did you get actual access to these sites or footage from the sites? I mean, what, what, did, you, what did you find? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did. Um, previously, the, there was a handful of Americans that were trying to get in to follow this theory, but they kept getting arrested and their stuff taken. Um, and, and that luckily did not happen to me. Um, <laughs> although I did have some encounters with police, but I, there, there were ways around it. But uh, the, the bottom line is, in terms of evidence um, from where we think the Red Sea crossing happened, uh, there, there's some evidence that we show there. Um, the Bible says they then go to a place called Elam. Uh, where it has 12 wells, and that's where they start to get water. Um, you follow the path described in the Bible. You come to an oasis, just like the book of Exodus says, that still has 12 wells. You, you go to where uh, Moses met his wife in the land of Jethro, and just geographically where it should be. There's evidence of the golden calf worship um, scene uh, that some people might re remember from the Bible, where some of Moses' followers are worshiping golden calf. And there's a fenced-in spot where you can see where that probably happened right in front of what we think is the real Mount Sinai, the place where Moses climbed up and got the Ten Commandments. So um, is, the, is the documentary done now? Is it, is it up for people to, yep, to watch? It is, yep, it is out there now. It's got about 400,000 views, which uh, for a poor guy like myself, who can put, I think I put 20 bucks into promotion. <laughs> um, that's that, that's pretty awesome. And uh, Glenn Beck saw it, and he's promoting it. And the endorsement he gave is uh, he he actually said this. He said it's a game changer for mankind. Wow, that's high praise. 
That's high praise. Yeah. Well, well Ryan, uh, I really appreciate it. I mean, you have so much perspective here from, you know, foreign policy and, and national security to now, you know, Moses. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> you're a renaissance man. So, Ryan, I appreciate your time and your perspective. Um, where can people find you if they want to learn more? Uh, the best thing they could do is, well, they can just go to ryanmorrow.com, where that's kind of like where all my work is. And then the name of the documentary, again, is Finding the Mountain of Moses. Easy enough. Easy enough. All right, Ryan, thanks so much. We'll talk soon. Everyone, right. we'll be right back after this with a quick break. The phone lines are open, so give me a call at 844-900-2825. That's 844-900-BUCK. Stay tuned to The Buck Sexton Show. Welcome back. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show. I'm Harlan Hill filling in for Buck. The phone lines are open, so give us a call at 844-900-2825. That's 844-900-BUCK. You're probably familiar with AARP. You or someone you know might already be a member, but did you know that AARP lobbies for a lot of progressive causes? They fought tooth and nail for a government-run healthcare system. They even scripted, get this, they even scripted portions of White House speeches behind closed doors to ensure the passage of Obamacare. And they stood against tax cuts for the middle class and small business owners. That's why I recommend AMAC. AMAC was founded by Air Force veteran Dan Weber over a decade ago to not represent, uh, to represent not only conservative views, but policy that's good for America. They advocate for conservative values like protecting the border, and they offer a lot of value for their members, like discounts on car insurance, hotels, uh, roadside assistance, dental plans, even cell phone services. So stand with AMAC as they fight the good fight by becoming a member today. The benefits are great, but the cause is even greater. Tell your family and tell your friends. Join right now at amac.us slash buck. That's amac.us slash buck. AMAC is better, better for you, better for America. So today, British lawmakers have soundly rejected Theresa May's Brexit deal over in the UK. It's the biggest defeat for any UK government in modern UK history. Over 200 speeches across eight days of debate, members of the House of Commons ignored the Prime Minister's final pleas to support her plan and threw it out by 432 votes to 202. That's crushing. That's crushing. That's a margin of defeat greater than the previous record, which was set in 1924. It means that the prime minister now faces a deep political crisis with no clear way forward. And the opposition to the Labor Party, or the opposition Labor Party, immediately triggered a vote of no confidence in, in Theresa May's government. Now, what does that mean? It means that in a parliamentary system, you could, you could, you could, you could push for a, a no confidence vote and seek to remove her from office. If uh, her party and a majority of, of parliament no longer have confidence that she can do her job, they can remove her and they can put in someone new. The Labor Party can't do it on, our, on their own, um, but as, as part of a larger coalition, including um, members of Theresa May's Conservative Party, they could pull her out. So she's in a, she's in a perilous state. And uh, the trajectory of the United Kingdom, because Brexit is such an important issue for them, is really in question. And acknowledging the scale of the defeat, the Prime Minister said she would allow time for the House of Commons to debate that motion um, tomorrow on, 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 on whether the parliament has confidence in her. The Labor, the Labor Party leader, Jeremy Corbyn, who's kind of like a Bernie Sanders-style socialist, called the defeat catastrophic and said the vote of no confidence would allow the House of Commons to, quote, give its verdict on the sheer incompetence of this government. You know, he may be a, a crazy left-wing uh, socialist, but given how resoundingly she was defeated today of this Brexit vote because she has totally mismanaged it, 
he might actually have a point. Um, May urged lawmakers to listen to British citizens who voted to leave the EU. And she said, quote, I ask members of all sides of the House to listen to the British people. Now, listen, nobody is really questioning, or at least none of the conservatives that voted against this today are questioning whether or not to leave the UK or leave the EU. They're questioning the deal that she struck. And now here's a great example of why her deal is so bad. It would provide for the ability for the United Kingdom to trade with the European Union. But if the if the UK wanted to do a trade deal with the United States, which obviously they, would, they obviously they would want to do, we're one of their major trading partners, that would have to be approved by the EU. No one in their right mind would ever agree to that. So the fact that Theresa May even had the the guts to take this to the floor, it just shows how to use Jeremy Corbyn's own words, how incompetent she must be. Now listen, guys, I want to hear from y'all. I'm going to take some calls. So make sure that you call in. Um, the phone lines are open. Uh, we're going to be taking some calls soon. 844-900-2825. I want to hear what you think about this government shutdown. I want to hear about what you think about all these Democrats running off on vacations to Hawaii and Puerto Rico while President Trump has to stay back in the White House and try to work out a deal. So call us, 844-900-BUCK. Stay tuned. Welcome back. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show. I'm Harlan Hill in for Buck. The phone lines are open, so give us a call at 844-900-2825. That's 844-900-BUCK. With the media hyperventilating about Russian collusion and the government shutdown, one thing we don't hear much about anymore from the media is the VA, a department that has let our veterans down at every turn for decades, and which is arguably the single best example of socialized medicine just not working. Joining me to discuss that and many more as an expert on this, Chris Nawim, He's also a good friend of mine, and he's the vice president of Next Veterans, as well as an Iraq War veteran. Chris, first of all, thanks for your service, and thanks for joining us. Great to be with you, Harlan. So help me understand, like, what's happening right now? Is this still an issue, the, the VA, like the wait times and all of that? The VA still is having a lot of problems. Uh, president Trump has made some major uh, changes early, and it's been very effective at giving VA the authorities it needs to lessen the health care wait times, give veterans a choice between local VA hospitals and private care providers if they can see a doctor sooner, cutting down on the union bureaucracy, getting things right, and that's been encouraging. But I still think a major issue with the VA are Obama holdovers and union bosses that are still dragging their feet, delaying the president's agenda, and still kind of just being bureaucratic. So that's going to continue, and that's been an issue in many respects. But I do think the president is moving in a good direction, and the VA is trying to reform. So you're telling me that, I mean, well, this actually makes sense because we hear this from every different department across the federal government. That there are Obama holdovers that are in there that are undermining the mission of this administration to make some meaningful reforms and changes. And you're saying the VA is no different. It's the exact same thing there. It's exact the same. And, and the VA is also the second largest federal agency next to DOD. Wow. We're looking at 300,000 employees. It's a very, very large bureaucracy. And there's a lot of uh, high-ranking federal employees that, frankly, just want to kind of keep things the same. And there, there's really no incentive to improve and change processes. So there's a lot of finger-pointing. And the veteran ends up being sort of second to the bureaucrat. It's, it's the VA before the veteran. I think the Trump administration has tried to put the veteran in front of the VA. And I think putting the veteran in front of the VA is the real trick to the reform, and I think the president's working on that now. So, uh, I mean, what are the biggest pain points for the VA? Like, if you had to identify the three biggest problems, I mean, what are they? Number one is continued health care 
wait times for veterans and trying to get the bureaucracy to allow veterans to have these private consults when the VA line is too long so they can see a doctor. Number two is staffing because of long bureaucratic rules to actually fill doctor positions, which I think if you get the more bureaucrats out behind desks and more doctors in there, we'll solve that. And the third one is twofold. One, the canine testing program is a big distraction. It's a total disaster. It needs to be shut down. What is that? The canine testing program? What is that? So the canine testing program is essentially these these painful tests the VA was doing in in science labs uh, with federal tax money to, you know, allegedly create new discoveries for for veterans' health around cardiac and other things, but they never got any results out of it. There were a lot of scandals around it, and Congress and the president shut it down, but there's one waiver authority in the law that allows the VA secretary to continue the programs. It's it's about a million dollars a year, and the current secretary is allowing the experiments to go forward. And I think he's really making a mistake. I think he's listening to some very bad advisors. And I think eventually it's going to be shut down. But it's just another example of VA bureaucrats and probably doctors getting paid a lot of money and lobbyists in the space that just want to continue bad disaster programs because it's in it, it's a benefit to them. So, well, I think the president's drained the swamp. At VA, the swamp has been there for so long, and there's so many bureaucratic rules that it's going to take a little bit longer. But this is one program, the canine testing program, that we need to shut down in 2019, and I think we're going to get it done. So uh, what about making available more private access to care for veterans? Um, I mean, do you think that's an important option across the board or in specific areas? What's your take on that? I do. I certainly think, and we have the stats. I mean, certain VAs uh, do better than others. We call these FISNs, uh, Veteran Integrated Service Networks, basically hospital systems. For the ones that struggle, a veteran needs the option to say, I can use the VA or I'm going to go to a private care provider. And it the program exists, but there's been a lot of problems around the rules of when you're allowed to use it, when you're allowed to get a consult. And so, and there's been a lot of division in the veteran community about private privatization, but it's not privatization. It's choice. It's limited private care when VA still is the overall healthcare provider. It should work. It is working. The president's got this right. Most of Congress has got this right. But again, when you're dealing with a bureaucracy that big, you're dealing with regulations and rules and federal money, there's still a lot of delays. But I I think that's been a key issue. It's been improving. And I think that the VA committees have got to work together. You know, Democrats are going to have the House committee. Republicans have the Senate committee. They've got to work together and have hearings to get the health care choices right so we can lessen those wait times, improve health care, and also prevent veterans from, um, from having mental health issues. Well, let's talk on let's touch on the mental health issue right now, um, because arguably, I mean, that's one of the most visible um, issues or most vocal issues that we're starting to hear more and more about. Um, what is the VA doing to treat that as an issue of priority? Um, I mean, are there programs in place? What are they doing? That's a great question. They're they're providing a lot of funding, but the problem is the VA spends so much money on ads and marketing and all these PR people, 
And the PR people really just run around and talk about things that half the time aren't even germane. The other challenge is most of the veterans that take their life, sadly, they're not enrolled in VA. These are veterans that aren't enrolled in the system. We've got about 22 million veterans, only 9 million are enrolled in VA, and around 4 million regularly use it. Some veterans don't like to use it. Others do. But the point is, a lot of those veterans aren't even in the VA. So why isn't the VA brand strong enough to attract veterans is a whole other issue. So veterans issues, I'm glad you're, 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 you're covering it. It's so great to be on because, you know, Harlan, veterans issues just don't get the attention they need most of the time. Uh, you know, in our busy lives. I mean, Veterans Day, Memorial Day, we, we take that moment, but the day-to-day, there's a lot of issues that need to be fixed. I think the president's focused on it. Um, I think Democrats usually try to get it right, but I think they, they need to learn that the union, the American Federation of Government Employees, are a bunch of hacks. I mean, they're, <laughs> they're president, non-vet. He's anti-reform. He put bureaucrats over the interest of veterans that, that died on secret waiting lists in Phoenix. And we really need to make sure we keep slamming that union. And frankly, I don't even know why VA gets to have a union. I mean, I think Wait, that that's a so whole you're telling me discussion. the head of the union for the VA isn't even a veteran? No. So the, the union, the AFGE, it's a big union that includes VA, but also other federal agencies at large. They have... A, they have a large membership, but not all not all VA employees are members. But the head of that is uh, not a vet. I believe uh, he was a VA nurse at one point. But again, that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with people that don't understand how it is. Secretary Wilkie does get it. He is a vet. His 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 he comes from a military family. But again. The union has been an issue. The union has, AFGE has been a big, big issue, and they've been big union people. And, and President Obama said he was going to reform the union, and then he backed off back in uh, the, the, the last uh, session, of, two, two sessions of Congress ago, H.R. 1994, he issued a veto threat. So um, luckily, President Trump got that done in the first year. It was called the VA Accountability Act. It allows awesome. VA employees to be fired without, you know, waiting years and years in appeals. If they, do, if you, if you mistreat our veterans, you should be fired, and maybe even have the door hit you on the way out. And that's the way the Trump administration is taking on the unions now. Well, Chris, I mean, this has been great. I'm glad that we could shine a light on this. I know this is something you spend every day working on, and um, and I really appreciate it and appreciate your service. Where, where can people find more about you? They can find me uh, at my name um, and Twitter. It's C-H-R-I-S-N-E-I-W-E-E-M, like Mike Nywame, Chris Nywame. I am the vice president of Next Veterans and uh, work a lot of veterans' issues, and I'm always happy to hear veterans' issues, try to work them out, and uh, hear different perspectives on these VA policy issues. Thank you so much, Chris. As always, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me, Harlan. We'll be right back after this quick break. Make sure that you dial in. Give us a call at 844-900-2825. That's 844-900-BUCK. Stay tuned. The Russians exploited a massive backdoor into the foundation of our democracy. Moscow's attack on American democracy. The work by Russian agents to try to destabilize American democracy. It's everything you need to know about the threat to our democracy. You have Republicans who are silent and seemingly okay with this kind of attack on our democracy. There is no question that Russia attacked us. We're attacked, ladies and gentlemen, on our Constitution. Attack on the integrity of our elections. An attack on our democracy. The first time we've had an adversary attack us that we have not responded. This is Harlan Hill. I'm back in for Buck Sexton uh, while he's on assignment down there in uh, uh, California on the border. 
we wanted to play that clip because this is just an endless barrage of mainstream media attacks against the president that are almost word for word identical. And it's not just the media. I mean, it's also Democratic leadership, people like Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, others, right, where they, they say that, uh, you know, this Russian collusion that has still not been substantiated is, quote, destabilizing democracy, an attack on our democracy, an attack on us, blah, 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 blah. And they do it because if they repeat it enough, they think that it will become truth. <laughs> and at its core, this is an attempt to delegitimize the president of the United States. And it started long before even the election. And if you were here for our first segment uh, in the A Block, you heard the, the great conversation that I had with a, a former official at the Justice Department about this. But this process of delegitimizing the incoming president of the United States started even before the election. I can remember being on CNN in, I think it was October, either late September or early October 2016. And I said on there that the reason that this Russian collusion story came up was, quote, to plant seeds of doubt in the event that President Trump won, wins, and candidate Trump. And I got to pat myself on the back on that one. I get some things wrong, but I got that one right. You know, uh, that's exactly what this was. That's exactly what they've turned out to do. And it's only been turned up. They turned the dial up by orders of magnitude after his election, and then again after his inauguration. And now with every quarter, that passes. I mean, it has ratcheted up um, precipitously. And that's all while we don't have a shred of evidence to substantiate the accusation of collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia. Not a shred, zero, nil, nothing. There's nothing there. So we're three years into this process. Three years since they started planting the seeds of doubt to undermine Trump. And they say that they're smoking guns. Watch Rachel Maddow. I know it's insufferable. Okay, I get it. I get it. I get it. She's really annoying. Okay. But just turn it on. Turn it on for a couple minutes, any given night. She will be on breathlessly talking about this as if there's a smoking gun and we're on the, the, the verge of the annihilation of the Trump campaign every single night for years. It's been like this. It's like the little boy that cried wolf. Every night, and it's not just Rachel Maddow, to be fair. I mean, Don Lemon, Cuomo, whatever. I mean, even after the president's, this is how I knew the president did a good job the other night in the Oval Office address, is that instead of talking about it, Cuomo started shifting back to talking about uh, uh, Manafort that night, like almost immediately. <laughs> like, you know, so they're like, okay, we can't win on the wall shutdown issue. Let's go back to talking about Russia. Let's pull that out of the archives. It's pathetic, really. It's pathetic. I mean, if there was anything here, if it was, as someone that was involved with the Trump 2016 campaign, as somebody that's now on the advisory board for Trump's 2020 re-election campaign, I can tell you that if something like this happened at the level that they were saying it happened, it would be out by now. Okay? It would be out by now. There would be smoking guns. Mueller wouldn't be taking all this time to come to some sort of... We would have already have indictments and arrests for collusion. We don't. Now, do we have other? I mean, did they get Manafort on some of his personal dealings? Oh, yeah. Yeah, did they get some Trump people for, you know, 
um, allegedly lying under oath. Yeah, okay, yeah, they, they perjured themselves, you know, not on this issue, but, you know, on a variety of issues. They made mistakes. Yeah, totally. They got him. Fine. Okay, you got, you got Manafort because he didn't pay his taxes. Great. What does that have to do with the charge of collusion against President Trump? Nothing. Nothing. But this is nothing new. I mean, we're going to keep hearing them, you know, destabilizing democracy and attack on democracy. The people that are actually destabilizing and undermining our democracy are the Democrats. And they're actively doing it every day. They're tearing this democracy down to its foundation because it is for their own political expedience. They cannot believe, they cannot believe that there was this revolution that happened in 2016 and they didn't see it coming. They don't believe it. They still don't believe it. So it'll keep happening. And it's not just the Democrats, to be fair. It's not just the media, to be fair. I mean, it's people in the establishment of the Republican Party, too. And some people come around to it. We have a second clip here, and it includes some top Republicans, including Mitt Romney from 2016. And let's hear what they have to say. He'd rather have a puppet as president of no the puppet, United States. No puppet. And it's pretty clear. You're the puppet. What Donald Trump is saying is that he would unilaterally surrender to Russia and Putin, give Putin a massive foreign policy victory. This is a race between a man who uh, praises Vladimir Putin, pursues Putin. And he thinks Putin's a good guy, so I just can't go there. Donald Trump says he admires Vladimir Putin. I do think that um, a Trump victory is a gift to Vladimir Putin. It's like on their, they're on the same page. And now you have Vladimir Putin basically pulling out the old KGB playbook on how to manipulate Donald Trump, and it appears he's fallen right into it. Mr. Trump's continued flattery of Mr. Putin uh, and uh, the degree to which he appears to model many of his policies uh, and approaches to politics on Mr. Putin uh, is unprecedented in American politics. Well, I got to give a couple people in there some credit for coming around, seeing the light, because those 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 latest clips were from 2016. Um, you know, Senator Graham and Senator Cruz. You know, they've both seen the light, right? And uh, they're firmly on the president's team, and they know that this Russian collusion accusation is totally unfounded and unsubstantiated. So I give them credit for that. But the rest of them, I think, are largely. Um, I think the rest of the people in there comprise the establishment that is grasping at straws for some way to delegitimize this president. And um, uh, I'm frankly sick of it. And uh, I brought up in the, in the, in the, in the B block that um, my concern is that this, it could become the new norm, right? I mean, Democrats have clearly overstepped their bounds here. They have worked to chip away at the foundation of democracy purely because they don't like Trump. Right? It wasn't enough to oppose him and obstruct him on all of his policy, but they've got to like tear him down as a person and as the president. Um, and my concern is that you know this could play both ways because you know as a Republican, I'm going to want some retribution, and I think that's bad for our democracy. It's a real shame. Anyway, this is once again Harlan Hill in for Buck Sexton here on the Buck Sexton Show. I want to thank you all for for tuning in. We'll be right back after this break. Uh, make sure you uh, tune back in. Welcome back. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show. I'm Harlan Hill filling in for Buck. The phone lines are open, so give us a call at 844-900-2825. That's 844-900-BUCK. We have a government shutdown, contentious hearings on the Hill, Democrats announcing for president left and right, and an economy that many view as precarious. Joining me to break all of this down is Ryan Gerdusky, a senior political reporter and a political consultant. 
Ryan, uh, help me understand with all of this happening, how the president starts to pivot to focusing on a general election bid. Hey, Harlan. So, yeah, um, you know, 2020, believe it or not, is just around the corner. Um, Democrats are jumping in. Kirsten Gillibrand, Amy Klobacher, uh, Kamala Harris, they're all preparing uh, a launch and several up, like Elizabeth Warren already has. Um, the good thing for Trump, Trump's approval ratings have fallen in the, during the government shutdown to the very low 40s, which is not a great place to be. But there was a, a public policy uh, polling uh, a, a research uh, paper done. They're a liberal organization, and they tend to skew more liberally. So they had they, they sampled out the votes in North Carolina, and they found it basically a tide uh, between Trump and the major um, competitors, Democrats, and uh, all, the, all the major Democrats were within the margin of error from him. Um, now, the poll oversampled Democrats, so it leans a little heavily Democrat. But the most important part was among independents in this poll, Trump was clobbering major Democrats. With Biden, who is the most viable Democrat running for president right now, he's beating him with independents by 15 points. Among Cory Booker, it's 21 points. Beto O'Rourke, it's almost 30 points. Um, uh, Elizabeth Warren, it's 20 points. So Trump seems to have a major edge with some independent voters. And if that's true nationwide, like it is in North Carolina, if it's true in Florida, if that's true in Ohio, Trump's really in a in much better position for re-election than I think he is. What he needs to do is after this um, this government shutdown's over with, after he gets some money for, for wall funding, I think he really needs to start pivoting towards really popular um, middle ground issues. Um, one being drug prices, that's something him and Nancy Pelosi very much agree on. Uh, the second would be infrastructure spending. And the third, and this thing he promised on the campaign, and it still hasn't happened, he, shouldn't, he needs to reform Common Core. It's wildly popular among women, wildly popular, the, the, sorry, Common Core is wildly unpopular among women, among, among mothers, among teachers, major, major constituencies that have a very negative opinion about Donald Trump. He promised to overturn Common Core two and a half years ago. I don't know what Betsy DeVos is doing in her spare time besides buying new designer glasses. She needs to be reforming Common Core or ending Common Core or throwing to the states something because it would be a major, major boost, right. in my opinion, to Trump's reelection. So let's just take a step back and, and look at that poll out of North Carolina. So what you're telling me is that a liberal poll administered by a liberal uh, consultant, um, public policy polling, PPP, which we used to use, you know, I'm a former Democratic consultant. We used to we used to hire them. We used to pay them to conduct our polls. So this is hardly, an, you know, uh, not that any of the, the polls that we typically read about are, 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 are independent. I mean, I think that everybody that conducts a poll has some sort of um, you know, editorial bend to them. Um, but this one is particularly uh, slanted to the left, uh, but is widely respected. I'll give them credit for that. But what you're saying is that even though they're oversampling Democrats, they have Democratic heritage, um, they still show that the president is in on very solid footing in North Carolina, right? That, that, that was the, the takeaway. Well, he's tied. So like, tied. let's take yeah. Kamala Harris. They're at 45-45 in the poll. Kamala Harris is winning uh, Democrats by 61 points. Trump is winning Republicans by 70-some-odd points. But Trump is then winning independents by 22 points. So they've clearly oversampled Democrats to make it seem like it's a tied race. If Trump is winning independents by 22 points and he's winning 14 percent of Democrats, 81 percent of the Republicans, as this poll states, he's winning by more, by he's more than just a tie. That is clearly an oversample of Democrats. But by 22 points is a gigantic margin. Yeah, absolutely. So what about this shutdown? I mean, because I'm starting to read more and more that P 
people are blaming the president and Republicans more than Democrats. Uh, you know, the Washington Post and ABC News conducted this poll from January 8th to the 11th among 788 Americans. And it showed that um, overall, 53% of people are blaming Trump and, Re and the Republicans compared to 29% for Democrats. Um, and 13% viewed both equally at fault. Um, this can't be good. Um, or am I over, am I over, am I inflating the significance of this polling, particularly this early in, in an election cycle? Well, I think, one, it's not good for the president, but also people are very forgiving about government shutdowns. You remember 2013 when Ted Cruz really shut down the government um, and Republicans swept the Senate in 2016, 2017, 2017 rather, um, Chuck Schumer shut down the government and Democrats won the House back. I think people are very forgiving about government shutdowns. It doesn't really stick in people's mind very often. Most people don't understand it and most people aren't affected by it. Um, so I don't hold that this will be uh, a long-lasting thing for the president. Um, but if he gets wall funding, this will be the biggest booster to his base to show that he's actually the real deal, that he's not, you know, one of these weaker Republicans who could pitch. So it's worth the cost. That's your point. I mean, is it, it's worth the cost. I think so. I, yeah. I do think. I think something needs to happen very soon. But I do think that it's worth the cost right now. I don't think that this should go into the summertime, though, or or into the no, summertime. I don't think this should go into the spring. I don't want this to go for months and months and months. But hopefully within another week or two, I think something's going to break. You have to remember, there are 35 House Democrats in, in Trump states, in Trump, sorry, in Trump districts. And there are a number of Democrats in the Senate who are in um, Trump states or, or swing states or who have an enormous amount of government workers in their states. So I think the properly applied pressure on those Democrats, um, you might see some people like Doug Jones already said he'll vote for the wall funding. Um, yeah. And I think that maybe some applied pressure on Mark Warner, you might see him sit there and start to break with with Chuck Schumer, given the fact that he's got a huge amount of government workers in his state in Virginia. Well, and one concern, though, is that Democrats are applying a lot of pressure on um, the back end, from what I've heard to the public sector unions um, representing TSA workers and uh, air, um, and uh, air traffic controllers. Now, um, under current federal law, these unions are barred from striking. But uh, I think the Democrats and the unions want to test that in the courts. And if you had air traffic controllers and TSA officials striking that would bring this country to a halt, the ability to travel and conduct business to a halt, I can't forecast what the political consequence is going to be for both sides if that were to happen. I mean, that is apocalyptic. And I think that's what Democrats know. And they figure that they're going to end up on, on, on top there. I mean, the Washington Post did a little bit of reporting on this today. Um, I think that this is a distinct possibility. Maybe not right now, um, but the further we go into this, I think the, de the Democrats are going to get more aggressive. And I don't see them backing down and giving even a modicum of concession to the president. On this, I mean, they know that that would be too much of a political loss for them, and uh, and they know that they they have the president kind of pinned in here in a way, and they have some of these these outside players like these public sector unions in their back pocket that they can probably bring a little bit more pain to bear. I mean, how concerned are you about that? Um, I, I have not heard that story. That is concerning, but it have to go to a, a, a court case and it have to work its way through the courts before they could strike. So. I mean, it, that would take some some period of time before they could actually well, move on that. Well, the alternative, though, I, I, I'll push back a little bit, is that you may just have some of these federal workers start qu quitting 
You know, if you're a TSA you worker know, and you and you haven't been paid in that weeks, could, that right? Could definitely happen. Mm-hmm. You know, this that is could, that could happen, or they won't show up for work like that. Yep. And, and such has happened in certain areas. But I don't think that um, I don't think that that necessarily is going to be enough to uh, bring the economy to its knees or or affect travel um, to the extent that people are saying it will. Um, and if that and if worse comes to worse, I think that Trump really then should um, balk his his um, his uh, his advisors and sit there and do a and do a, a, a an executive order, not executive order, but a an emergency an executive emergency stating that, um, you know, we need to build a wall or have have this have the CBs build a wall. I mean, there are a million things that Trump could do that he still has not done yet. And I think that that's really where. It, you know, he's got he is much more cars in his pile than Democrats have in their pile. And if you look at where a lot of these government workers are, are in, it's in a lot of blue states. I mean, these are a lot of Democrat constituents who are going to be hurting. And I do. I mean, I have heard of more Democrats sit there and say that they are going to vote for wall funding of, of certain types. than I have heard Republicans. I mean, you have Katie Hill from California. You have a new woman from Virginia, seven, um, both saying they'll vote for wall funding. And, um, uh, you know, I and you've done yeah. Jones thing about for wall funding. I do think that there's an opportunity to sit there and start breaking with these moderate Democrats in these Trump districts, where if you have a majority plus all Republicans voting for wall funding, um, you may be in a situation where Nancy Pelosi is dealing with a mi- with with a, a minority of Congress on this position. Um, so I certainly think that 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 may change the uh, the media fight. Um and that may be Trump's best bet is that Nancy Pelosi is doing it against the will of, of her own Congress uh, or of her own House, rather. Um, and you also have Trump's State of the Union going forward, which will give him a huge chance to speak to the American public. Um, uh, but, yeah, other than that, I think that he should declare an, emer- an well, why, emergency. Why doesn't he declare an emergency or, you know, deploy the U.S. Army Corps I mean, of Engineers? I, I, I know, I personally know that people inside the administration and senators like Lindsey Graham, Lindsey Graham is all over television saying that he supports an executive emergency. I know for a fact from people on the Hill, it does not actually support that and has told Trump not to do that. Um, an executive emergency, uh, an executive emergency um, is wildly unpopular in polling, but I just don't believe many people are following this story of whether or not the wall is being built. I, I just I don't believe that, you know, the country is going to be enraged or not enraged based upon something that 99.8 percent of the country will never see. Most of us will never go to um, the Tucson area of the border to sit there and see the wall being completed or not completed. Um, I just I just don't think I don't think that this is as big of a story or as big of a political battle as Democrats are making it out to be. I think at the heart of it, if you look at the ABC poll, the one major drop, the support for the wall had it increased from, I think, 32% to 42% or something around that number. Um, but the one major drop was people extremely against the wall dropped from 54% to 38%. I just don't think many people support this wall. And also in the ABC poll, 45% of people who opposed the building of the wall wanted Democrats to sit there and support wall funding because they just want the government to open back again. Only 15%, 50% are asking Democrats to hold their ground. So it's about 25% of the country who are sitting there telling Democrats, you know, don't, don't give any concessions, don't give any concessions. You know, almost half the people who are opposed to the wall are now for building it just to reopen the government. I, I don't think that Nancy Pelosi's, I think Nancy Pelosi has overplayed this. 
where where people um, where people where people are actually opposed to the wall as much as she thinks they are. So let me ask you to make a prediction. I mean, four weeks out um, from now, um, is the government back up and running? Or are we in the same spot we're in right now? Within a month, I do think so. I think something. I think something has got to give within a month. I think that by within a month, you're going to have because the most important thing that's going to be happening come November of 2019 is you're going to have major elections in the legislature in Virginia, and you're going to have um, a lot of Republicans pushing on Trump to um, to give concessions in for for Republicans in Virginia. So I think that by the spring, I think the government will, I, within four to six weeks, I think the government will be up and running again, and we will have some type of money for border wall, whether it's through an emergency action or through um, through the Democrats in Congress giving something up. All right, Ryan, uh, where can people find you if they want to learn more? Uh, my website, ryangerdusky.com, or Twitter, at Ryan Gerdusky, or on Facebook, Ryan Gerdusky. Awesome. Ryan, thanks so much for joining me again. Uh, I'm sure I'll see you soon. We'll be right yeah, back after this quick break with more. The phone lines are open, so give us a call at 844-900-2825. That's 844-900-BUCK. Stay tuned to The Buck Sexton Show. Welcome back to The Buck Sexton Show. I'm Harlan Hill filling in for Buck. The phone lines are open, so give us a call at 844-900-2825. That's 844-900-BUCK. In the midst of all this whining coming from the left, the Kavanaugh hearings, the ridiculous Democratic Party government shutdown, you have to wonder... Why in the world would anyone act this way? My guess is that they're not getting their daily dose of Black Rifle coffee. Let me tell you, this coffee is good. I brew a cup, or maybe more like 10 cups, every morning while catching up on the news from overnight. And Black Rifle coffee is roasted to order. It guarantees that you're getting it fresh, a delicious coffee uh, with every order. Black Rifle coffee gives a portion of their sales to veterans and first responder causes. And Black Rifle Coffee Club makes things easy. Just pick the blend you want, the amount you want, and Black Rifle ships that coffee to your door every month. It's hassle-free. makes it really easy. I do it myself. Nothing cures a bad attitude quite like starting your day off with the most American coffee ever, Black Rifle Coffee. Visit BlackRifleCoffee.com slash buck and receive 15% off your order. That's BlackRifleCoffee.com slash buck. For 15% off, BlackRifleCoffee.com slash buck. I started the show by addressing the way that the Democrats elected to go to Puerto Rico to play on the beach and drink with lobbyists instead of working to get the government back up and running. Shame on them. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And in the last segment, if you heard it uh, with, with Ryan Gerdusky, we sort of addressed the fact that, you know, there's no winner here. If you look at the polling, you know, it's divided between Democrats and Republicans. More Republicans blame Democrats for the shutdown. More Democrats blame Republicans for the shutdown. And independents don't know which way to go. In the meantime, you know, all these workers that, uh, you know, from, from TSA to air traffic controllers to even Secret Service agents are going unpaid. And what the president's asking for is something relatively mild. He's asking for a fraction of what Democrats all voted to give uh, to border funding just 10 years ago. You know, all throughout the Obama administration to appease Republicans Democrats cast votes in support of border security funding because they wanted to look strong. Obama wanted to look like he was tough on security, even though, you know, he was letting millions in. He wanted to look tough. And now that the president's actually wanting to do something constructive to target specific er er areas of the border to prevent uh, just the total unimpeded trafficking of people and drugs into this country at points of entry, Democrats are nowhere to be found. 
all of a sudden they've decided that walls are racist and they're offensive. Right? And they say that we want other forms of border security, but they won't articulate what those, what those forms of security are. So the casualty in, in the meantime is that we have a lack of direction that is undermining the, 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 the foundation of our markets. It's uh, hurting you know, 800,000 families across this country that don't know whether or not they're going to get their next paycheck. Um, and it stands to get worse. I mean, we saw just last week that leading credit agencies are considering downgrading America from AAA status to something lower. Now, who knows what that'll be? I mean, in large part, that depends on, well, when does the government get reopened? One, uh, if it goes much further and we uh, we hit the credit ceiling, the, then you know we have a much bigger problem on our hands. We're playing with fire here. We're playing with fire. And so, you know, I, I, I talked with Grudowski a little bit about the polling and the winners and losers of it. But my concern is that government, for the first time in a long time, is undermining the, 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 the very foundation of our economy deliberately. And there are people to blame both in the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. And we can't take this back. Once you open this can of worms, once you open this can of worms, you can't put them back in. I'm really frustrated. This is serious. We're playing with fire, and I want to hear what you all have to say about it. So we'll be right back after this quick break with more. The phone lines are open. Give us a call, 844-900-2825. I hope you're as mad as I am. That's 844-900-BUCK. Stay tuned to The Buck Sexton Show. Welcome back. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show. I'm Harlan Hill filling in for Buck. We're over 600 days away from the election, but believe it or not, this is true. More than 450 candidates have already registered with the FEC to run for president in 2020. That's the vast majority of those people are lunatics. They're not serious people. But but they're about 20 to 25 names of very serious contenders that are starting to take shape. Some of them have announced. Some of them are still on the sidelines figuring things out. And I wanted to talk about who those people are, what their strengths and weaknesses are. And I'm looking specifically at people like Tulsi Gabbard, Julian Castro, Elizabeth Warren, Sherrod Brown, John Delaney, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Beto O'Rourke, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, Kirsten Gillibrand, and even Hillary Clinton. Now, there are a lot of names there, and it's going to make for a very crowded field for Democrats. Heck, as they just look to put together debate stages, I mean, they have a, they have a, a struggle ahead of them. So joining me to discuss and break down this field is Democratic consultant John Rally, the founding uh, partner of Counterpoint Messaging. John, how you doing? Harlan, that was quite a uh, list you ran through. That was pretty impressive. That that's not even <laughs> that's not even half of the serious contenders. It's just the ones I'm taking out. But uh, yeah. so who's the front runner, John? Like who who's the guy or woman? Well, I, I mean, I think as of today, I mean, let's th- let's almost think about it the way you have to look back and and think about Trump when he was in a 14 to 16 person field. I mean, he began that race and the thing that he was, that, uh, he was wildly underestimated for is he had a multi-billion dollar brand. So when he made errors, he made mistakes. He, he just had enough, whether you want to call it brand equity, goodwill, or just, uh, knowledge built up that he was, was able to sustain, sustain, you know, a, a lot of errors and things that almost nobody else in politics. I think, Right now, you've got two Democrats, uh, uh, Biden and Bernie, who have billion-dollar brands. I mean, they they are super well-known. Their support's deep. They'll be able to raise money. And um, 
but but at the same time, I mean, I don't know that anybody wants to be a front runner for any office these days in politics, especially over a two year period. And so I think if you're in their chair and and I mean, if it is a super crowded race like it was last time, I think that could benefit Biden and, and Bernie just just as it, the super crowded race benefited Trump, um, the ups hmm. and downs. And and uh, and if you only have that brand, you don't have the, the ability to energize and raise money. Uh, it won't be that helpful. And I think one of the huge things Hillary's team underestimated last time was, I mean, anybody who's run a um, 1,000 vote city council race knows if you're the incumbent and you're going to have challengers and, and you've got a base, the more challengers, the better. And at the end of the day, if there would have been five or six relatively modest to strong challengers, I mean, Hillary probably would have run away with the primary last time, um, even though Bernie Sanders ran a great race. I mean, just creating that one-on-one environment coalesces the 40% that are, that are going to be no to almost any candidate in a primary. Um, so, I mean, I think that's where you would start. I mean, I, th- I think they have huge advantages, but um, I don't know I don't know anybody that would want to run an intense two-year presidential campaign as the front horse right now. Well, and the added pressure there is that you can only raise, you know, for the primary cycle. So there's the financial question. If you get in now and you start burning capital, well, yeah, you have an advantage in that you're already out there and you can start building the fundraising machine that you right. need to run for president. But once right. those dollars are spent, you can't go back to the well. Um, conventional wisdom in, in a lot of races is if you're the front runner, you want a shorter race. But yeah, you have to you have to begin that exposure and attack. You have to light that fuse, and then you also have the money fuse as well. So it's, so, it's a real challenge. Absolutely. So maybe the better question then is, instead of who is the front runner, what faction of the Democratic Party is going to win here? And, and, to, and this is going to really boil it down. It's going to be kind of simplistic. But is it the moderate wing of the Democratic Party that's a little bit more pragmatic? Or the progressives like, um, you know, Cory Booker or... Um, uh, uh, Ocasio-Cortez, somebody like that, um, which wing of the party is going to win? Well, I think I think all of the presidential candidates are pretty progressive and are going to run as pretty progressive candidates. I mean, I think you've got some slight variations, but I mean, I mean, you know, from Biden to Beto to, I mean, you know, a lot of the different senators, I think they're all going to run as pretty progressive candidates. I don't, I don't think there's going to be dramatic ideological differences. I don't think we're going to have a conservative Democrat or even somebody who's a cautious moderate, really, in terms of policy. And uh, I think also the, a misconception about the a lot of Democratic primaries is just going furthest to the left ensures victory. I mean, I think you have to motivate, you have to communicate that you've got a uh, connection with the electorate and you're inspiring people and you really believe whatever your rap message or lane is i think it's one of the amazing things about beto o'rourke's rise right now i mean he does not have the billion dollar long-term relationship brand that a lot of the others do so we could certainly see him flame out quicker um but i think he's he's got this connection right now and it's not just in texas with uh, with democratic voters and uh and a lot of primary voters and the other the other challenge is there's going to be a lot of floating around in any primary where, where you've got well-known candidates whether it's a, a race for governor or mayor or, or the presidential race we're, we're going to go into iowa with a number of candidates that all the democrats like 
And so I think the, the uh, um, you know, some, some weight momentum could be big as well. And I think, I think the other thing that people don't think about right now is everybody's matching up the candidates against each other and against Trump right now, but trying to imagine outside events that impact the campaign. I mean, if, if the investigation heats up, if we have an impeachment hearings, what that does to U.S. senators' opportunity versus, you know, m- many of them have, have a ways to go still. And so trying to anticipate those sort of events. And I think also, is there somebody who could be the RFK candidate and time this to get in at the moment where um, a couple campaigns collapse or a front runner has a bad run and kind of make the late RFK style 1968 entrance at the, at the right time to conserve resources, conserve energy. And uh, but that's also a risky strategy in a, you know, a 10 to 15 person field. Well, and so one thing that strikes me is that you had California move up its primary date. It'll coincide with Texas and Florida. Um, that seems to me that it would advantage Kamala Harris and her bid. Um, Beto will have obviously an advantage in Texas and he has national name ID, but the fact that he was just on the ballot there and almost executed an upset of Ted Cruz in a solidly Republican state. Um, and he's a dynamic figure leads me to believe that he should fare very well there. And then Florida's, you know, an unknown. Um, but you know, if you have big delegate holes getting, split up between these major candidates early it's going to be very difficult for a front runner to emerge and it strikes me that 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 means that not only are you going to have a crowded field you're going to have a very long primary process and that this will go all the way to the convention um one does that concern you two are you concerned about the potential for a brokered convention not really. There's been lots of talk of that in the last couple of decades on both sides. It hasn't really happened. I, same with the primary process. We haven't. We've we had the most contentious, most number of candidates, most spending in the primary we've ever had as a Democratic Party this year at the con- congressional and other levels, and it cycle turned out pretty well for us. So I, I think that energy should translate into the presidential race and could be a real. Um, advantage. Um, I've, I've rarely seen a hot contested primary that so wounds a candidate that, that you regret it looking back. I mean, I, every candidate would love to run unopposed or, 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 you know, kind of walk through a primary, but that doesn't mean it's good for the Darwinian process that is running for president. I don't think it hurt Obama. I don't, I think it, I think it helped him. I don't think it hurt Trump. I think it helped him. And, uh, so I, I'm not that concerned about it. You know, it's hard to tell. I mean, the, the, you would certainly think in, structurally it helps Senator Harris in California or, or Beto in Texas. But if you look back to 92, I mean, what happened when Tom Harkin ran is everybody just said, well, why try in Iowa? The real battle's New Hampshire. And so it, it kind of, it, it almost uh, made those states made Iowa the sort of state that everybody was grading on a curve. Now, a lot less, um, uh, I mean, Texas and, and uh, California are, are much bigger delegate-rich states than, than Iowa was. So, uh, But it, you know, it could also be sweet relief. I mean, if you don't have to spend media and field and other dollars in, in uh, the two biggest states or two of the three biggest states, that might be the saving grace for a couple of these other campaigns. And then they may just make a strategic decision to uh, – 
um, to, um, you know, let the national media help communicate and, and more efficient ways communicate in Texas and California and, right. and not, uh, not essentially maybe spin down your whole campaign. You, I mean, for Al Gore and Bill Bradley didn't raise enough money together to run campaigns in Texas and California in 2020, I don't think. So, um, I mean, that's, right. that's one factor. Well, thanks, Sean. Uh, I know you're going to ha- stick around for the next segment, so thank you for that, and we'll, we'll be right back with you. Um, guys, if you're familiar with AARP, and you probably are, either you or someone you know is already a member, but did you know that the AARP lobbies for a lot of progressive causes? They fought tooth and nail for a government-run health care system. They even scripted portions of White House speeches behind closed doors to ensure the passage of Obamacare. And they stood against tax cuts for the middle class and small business owners. That's why I recommend AMAC. Why AMAC? Well, AMAC was founded by Air Force veteran Dan Weber over a decade ago to represent not only conservative views, but policy that's good for America. They advocate for conservative values like protecting the border and much more. And they offer a lot of value for their members, like discounts on car insurance, hotels, roadside assistance, dental plans, even cell phone plans. So stand with AMAC as they fight the good fight by becoming a member today. The benefits are great, but the cause is even greater. So tell your family and tell your friends. Join right now, amac.us slash buck. That's amac.us slash buck. AMAC is better, better for you, better for America. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show. We'll be right back with more after this quick break. Welcome back. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show. I'm Harlan Hill filling in for Buck. I'm back with Democratic consultant John Rowley. He's a partner at CounterPoint Messaging. John, over the weekend, we had footage of Democrats like Senator Menendez from New Jersey parting with lobbyists uh, on the beach, (laughs) on the beach in Puerto Rico. And uh, in context of the shutdown, it kind of struck me as a little tone deaf. Uh, is that the vibe that you've got from the other side of the aisle, or are we overreading this here? Well, I mean, you know, I think the Democrats had done about any, everything they could do to put a deal on the table for the president, and he just kept saying no. And uh, so, you know, I mean, w- whether uh, Puerto Rico was a strategic uh, flourish that will uh, – be a positive, you know, whether going to Hamilton or not was a good idea, but also that's a, that's a place where they put some money in the economy that had been, you know, hard hit by the hurricane and, and also a, a huge failure of the president. So I think the biggest challenge is that the president owned this shutdown up front and he is, uh, and I think most polling is showing that uh, even beyond Democrats among even Republicans and independents, people are playing at his feet. Well, I got to take issue there um, with your assessment of Democrats willing to come to the table and work out a deal on the shutdown. I mean, they're not willing to compromise at all on funding for the border wall, which I kind of think is very interesting because in 2013, all 54 Democrats in the Senate voted to pass the Border Security, Economic Opportunity and Immigration Modernization Act, which included $46 billion in border security improvements and added 700 miles of border fencing. Uh, Exactly what the president's looking to do today. Um, so the president's asking for $5 billion today. Back in 2013, every single Democrat voted for $46 billion. Where's the difference here? Like, what changed since 2013 that Democrats don't like fencing anymore? It's not, it's not the exact same wall, but I'm, I am glad you're emphasizing that Democrats are for uh, border security. It used to be. Because, yeah, well, and they, and they still are. I mean, the, the ridiculousness of the wall, I mean, even mo- most of Trump's supporters don't believe he's actually going to do it. And and, you know, I guess I, I guess we're never going to get Mexico to pay for it either. I mean, it's just uh, 
I mean, his whole thing was a pitch. It wasn't an actual policy. And I think even a lot of, I mean, a lot of his supporters were caught on tape, even in the primary in general, saying he's just, he's just saying that. He doesn't really believe he's going to get it done. And so, you know, now that we're, you know, weeks into the shutdown over something that just wasn't a, a believable policy, I mean, gosh, at, at least whether you disagree or disagree, tariffs and taxes and things like that are at least believable policies. This has always just been a, uh, a phantom. It's been a sales pitch. Well, now Democrats are saying, including Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, saying that walls are immoral. Well, you guys voted for 700 miles of it in 2013. Like, I, I, I just don't understand. Forgive me. I don't understand the discrepancy. It, it comes off as very disingenuous of Democrats to now oppose fencing, steel slat fencing, exactly what the president's proposing now, not a concrete wall, when you guys supported it just a couple of years ago. I, I don't, I, I really, I earnestly do not understand how they weren't immoral back then, but now they are. Well, I mean, there's so much of the president's policy that's, a, that's immoral around this. <laughs> I mean, in terms, of the, the, in terms of the families and the detainees and the people that have been harmed and injured, I mean, there, there's a, I think, I think the Democrats listen, and, and you know, I've, I am a, a frequent critic often when Democrats drop the ball on things, whether it's policy or or politics, but on this one, I think you know, digging in on a matter of principle when the go- when the president shutting down the government is the right human move. It's the right policy move, and I think it's the right long term political move. Maybe the right political move for Democrats, but I, I struggle to understand how it's the right moral one. I mean, when two thirds, according to a report that CBS had to, to to publish as a correction to to one of their fact checks, two thirds of the the women and children that are coming across the border. Um, are molested at some point during their journey through Mexico, um, and women and children are being trafficked um, uh, over the border illegally. Um, there's clearly a crisis of morality at the border uh, that we could address by having a, a more secure border, right? I mean, if we cut off the source for these people that are that are trafficking people uh, uh, across the border. So, yeah, and, what, maybe, and why the president can't come together on strategies that work? I mean, the old he build is a foot, build a ten foot wall, and there's going to be a a 12-foot uh, uh, ladder at some point, I mean, it's, it's, oh. it's the sort of thing that John McCain and Lindsey Graham and a lot of other uh, Republicans have embraced over time. And, uh, I mean, I think time and time again over the last 10 to 15 years, Democrats have been at the table to finally have an immigration reform bill. And the extreme right wing, the Tea Party wing, the Trump wing of the of the Republican Party has blown up uh, deals that some of the top Republicans, most well-known Republicans in the country, had, had pre-negotiated. And everywhere, so but John, I got to push back. Everywhere that there's a border wall, some sort of fencing, um, illegal crossings are down materially, and we saw that play out in San Diego, um, where CNN asked a local station, "Hey, can we get a reporter to talk about how the border wall doesn't work there?" They're like, "Oh no, it actually works here." CNN says, "Okay, never mind. We're not interested in having one of your reporters come on air." Um, so border walls do work. Um, so what's like? What's the problem? Now, I, I, I'm really trying to drill down here. If you have to give some concessions, and the president's willing to give some concessions, he's even willing. He's even willing to work with Democrats and give them permanent status for DACA recipients. If the president's willing to give that much up to Democrats, why can't they give him a measly five billion dollars? less than 0.1% of our annual budget, which is $3.8 trillion. Why can't they give that very small concession just to appease the president, even if you don't think it matters? 
Well, I mean, the Democrats have been at the table, and and they've also been clear all along. This is this is not going to happen. I mean, we're, so if it's that measly of amount of money, um, and and there's a huge consensus that it won't work. I mean, what, why would we shut down the government? <laughs> but there is consensus that it does work. Where <laughs> <laughs> crossings are down everywhere we put up these border walls. So we, we just can't agree on the facts. That's the problem. Yeah. That's the problem. And maybe that's why Washington is broken. But, uh, John, hey, I really appreciate your time today. I think we had a good good debate, good conversation on the, on the uh, makeup of the 2020 field and on the shutdown here. Where can people learn more about what you do? Sure. My uh, company's website is counterpoint messaging dot com and yeah if we have another hour we could maybe get through the rest of the uh, democratic field we uh, we we sped through it pretty well anyway, <laughs> that's thanks, right <laughs> thanks john you're listening to the buck sexton show we'll be back with more after this quick break welcome back you're listening to the buck sexton show i'm harlan hill filling in for buck the phone lines are open so give us a call at 844-900-2825 that's 844-900-buck even before the government shut down the markets were under considerable pressure in the last quarter of, of 2018. And as a Trump supporter, this gave me some serious heartburn as we looked at 2020 because, frankly, I believe that old trope. It, it's the economy, stupid. And so I thought I would have somebody come in who's an expert at this to talk me off the ledge. So I've got John Hartley. Uh, he's an economics commentator that you'll find on Forbes magazine and on foxnews.com. John, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Harlan. So first, I'm just going to ask a very simple question. Are we headed for a recession between now and the 2020 presidential election? Harlan, I think it's unlikely. Uh, I think if you look at hard economic data, uh, where we're at today, the unemployment rate's below 4%. Unemployment insurance claims are at a post-war low. And GDP growth is looking like it's going to come in at around 3% for 2018. All of these things are evidence of what I would call it a gangbusters economy. Uh, I think there's a lot of people uh, who have become somewhat concerned about what's been happening in financial markets as of late. I think there's a lot of reasons um, why uh, financial markets uh, have been somewhat disconnected from the macro economy. Uh, one of them being what's happening uh, on the global uh, on the global stage is happening with the global economic growth. Um, China has been adversely impacted by. Uh, the, the ongoing uh, tr- trade negotiations between uh, the U.S. and China. Uh, it's important to remember that 40% of S&P 500 earnings uh, come from overseas. And so you know, the U.S. stock market, while it may seem like it's specific to the U.S., is actually um, can ebb and flow depending on what's happening in international markets. If you look as of right now, uh, the U.S. economy stands above and beyond um, all the other countries, uh, most other economies around the world, uh, certainly in, in, in developed and emerging markets. And so I think what's happening is there's a big disconnect between what's happening in financial markets and what's happening in the U.S. economy. Uh, I, I wouldn't be too concerned about what's happening uh, as of right now uh, as it relates to whether we're heading toward a recession uh, or not. On average, recessions happen um, approximately uh, 15% of the time. Uh, and so I, I think uh, I wouldn't be too concerned between now and, and, and 2020. Uh, it's certainly something that I think you want to keep an eye on, but uh, it's not something that I'm too worried about. I think there's a lot of Democrats out there that maybe are hoping uh, <laughs> yeah. that a recession could happen, but I think it's unlikely. Well, and, and one thing that was sort of a silver lining is that, you know, every time the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics comes out with a report, like um, when they came out with the report for December, I mean, the jobs growth looks solid, you know, I mean, and even wage growth. 
Um, and so, it, yeah, so it seems like the, despite the, the turmoil in the markets and this, this correction, I mean, that's what it is, it's a market correction, um, you know, it, it seems like the underlying economy is, is solid. I mean, and, and this underlies the longest expansion in post-war history. Um, and so uh, the, do you think that at least that is what, is what you're projecting is at least that trend continues? Or are you seeing that things are starting to slow down in terms of, you know, the, micro, I mean, the, the macroeconomics as well? Yeah, I, I think that uh, I, I tend to agree with you that uh, you know the longest post-war uh, the, the longest post-war expansion uh, doesn't seem to show any signs of slowing. I think unemployment claims over the past few weeks have, have been slight, like slightly elevated, but it's still very close to uh, post-war lows. Uh, I, I think one thing that you're seeing, and I think that one thing that positively contributed to Economic growth last year. I think many forecasters would agree that uh, tax reform, uh, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which was passed at the end of 2017, this is President Trump's signature tax law and, and signature legislative achievement, had a lot to do uh, with uh, rising investment or rising capex. Mm-hmm. So that those are things like factories, uh, new equipment purchases that that U.S. companies have made. Um, that all played a lot into the wonderful economic numbers that we saw last year, uh, as you pointed out. Uh, we had a, uh, a very strong jobs report from December, around 290,000 jobs were added to the economy. Uh, also, and, and wages uh, are, are passing 3% now. Yep. Uh, and, and so that uh, when you take out inflation, that's 1% uh, real wage growth, something that we haven't seen consistently really in, in decades. So I, I think that... Uh, well, let me hop in right there real now, quick. I mean, one of, the, one of the concerns that I see is that is this government shutdown. I mean, we're, we're, seeing, we're seeing the or we're hearing the threat of uh, downgrade of the U.S. credit rating, you know, from AAA, um, if this if this shutdown were to continue, and then if we hit our debt ceiling beyond that, um, that those both seem like triggers that could truly undermine the the trajectory of the economy going into 2020. And I don't see the president flinching on this shutdown. Um, and at the same time, I don't see Democrats flinching either. So um, is that reason to be concerned? I mean, are, are, do, you, do you think that that's being overplayed by some of the economists and some of the commentators that I, you know, hear on Bloomberg and CNBC? Um, or, or is that a real concern if the shutdown is to continue? Well, it, it, it's, a great, uh, it's a great question. Uh, there are costs associated with uh, a shutdown or there, there is an impact. But uh, I think as of right now, I think it's been relatively small. I think it non-linearly increases over time. So I think if the shutdown, uh, which is, I think, now 24 days long, if it were to go on for another three months, I, I think that's you know the point where I think you'd want to start maybe uh, being very concerned. Um, but I, I think as of right now, only two or three weeks, I, I think, isn't something to be overly concerned about. I would agree with you that I think it's been somewhat um, overhyped uh, in in, um, in the financial press that tries to sort of weave a story around every uh, every daily move in the market, and um, but th- that that being said, you know to your point about downgrades, uh, you know the U.S. debt was has been downgraded before. If you remember in, in September of 2011, uh, it, it was downgraded, uh, and, and this had to do with uh, a standoff over a debt ceiling raise. Um, and what happened there is you actually did have markets. Um, go haywire, uh, but there was no macroeconomic fallout from that event. And so 
Uh, I, I think you know, if you look at uh, 2008, where uh, you know, the rating agencies had so many uh, subprime mortgage, uh, so many subprime mortgages rated AAA, I think the credit agencies can get it wrong. And in my opinion, I think they got it wrong when they downgraded U.S. debt in, in 2011. And if they do it again now, I, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if markets overreacted. Uh, there's a lot of behavioral uh, uh, psychology that goes into uh, market movements. And, and I think that also plays into why we've recently seen the downturn in markets. And there, there's a lot of certain types of traders, momentum traders that, that can have an impact on uh, on markets as well. Um, but again, I, I don't think any of those individual factors is, is probably enough to derail um, the economy. There's really only two uh, reasons why an economy will go into recession, at least in kind of the post-war history. One of them is, is the Fed. When uh, they raise rates very high in response to high inflation, uh, that can put uh, the economy into recession that happened in the early 80s when you had Paul Volcker raising interest rates nearly to 20%. And the second cause of recessions in the U.S. in the post-war period has been uh, financial imbalances. So these are things like the tech bubble in the late 90s where you had you know, all your friends were uh, starting to, uh, dot-com companies uh, and getting rich very quickly and, and, and very weird, strange uh, excesses happening. Uh, and similarly, in 2007 and eight, you had... Uh, uh, a housing bubble emerge, and so th- those are financial imbalances that can uh, that can cause recessions. Um, that, on top of Fed what are called policy mistakes, those are the two sort of leading causes. And, and as of right now, I don't really see um, either of those being the case. And certainly, with Fed interest rates, short-term interest rates being close to two percent, well below the twenty percent of the Volcker era. Uh, and I think with financial imbalances, you have corporate uh, debt issuance, uh, non-financial corporate debt issuance is maybe a bit higher than historical norms, but I, I don't necessarily see that as being a, a massive uh, a financial access that poses some threat to the macroeconomy. That's reassuring. I mean, and you know, if one takeaway, if, if I've had one positive takeaway from all of this, it's that it does seem like in terms of raising interest rates, the Fed is going to take a step back and maybe maybe slow down this year. Is that is that your, your read on it too for 2019? Yeah, if you look at uh, uh, what uh, both Jerome Powell or Jay Powell uh, Chairman of the Fed's been saying, what Vice Chair of the Fed's been saying, what uh, the Fed Fund's futures market has been forecasting. Right now, the market expects around uh, one to two hikes uh, happening next year. Uh, the Fed is, is now forecasting, I think, two. Um, I, I think it's important to remember how uh, low interest rates are compared to their historical norms. Uh, you know, 2%, even though know, it, it's high, uh, or sorry, 2.5%, which is where the upper bound of the Fed Fund's uh, ranges right now, even though it, it, it's high, I think it's still low relative to, uh, uh, to, right. to historical standards. And so, yeah, I, I would agree with you that the Fed, I think, is taking a pause right now. And I think ultimately that'll have a, a reassuring impact uh, both on markets uh, in, in the economy as well. And the right. reason why they're, they're raising interest rates to begin with was concerns about inflation. And, and that, I, I think, uh, have, have borne out to, um, to be somewhat alleviated as well. We have CPI is now around 2.2% year over year, um, close to its uh, 2% target. So I, I, I wouldn't be too concerned about um, uh, too many more Fed uh, rate hikes causing some sort of a policy mistake. I, I, I think they're being very carefully dependent. All right. Well, John, uh, thank you very much for talking me off the ledge there. I'm feeling a little bit better about our prospects, and uh, we'll be sure to have you back on again soon. Thanks for having me. We'll be back after this quick break with more. The phone lines are open, so give us a call at 844-900-2825. That's 844-900-BUCK. Stay tuned to The Buck Sexton Show.
Welcome back. You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show. I'm Harlan Hill filling in for Buck. I want to thank you guys uh, for your time tonight. It's always great to fill in for Buck, and, and I give him a lot of uh, thanks and appreciation for trusting me with his mic tonight. Um, by now, y'all have all heard about Snippy.com. It's a new social media site, and if you've looked at Snippy.com and left, look again. Thousands of listeners have joined Snippy.com, expressing their opinions and stirring up lively conversations. Snippy is an unbiased social media platform that's all about conversation and community. Snippy not only encourages freedom of expression, but guarantees its users the ability to discuss topics freely without suppression from administrators. Check into Snippy.com for a quick update on politics, sports, current events, food, fashion, really anything. You can scroll through users' posts and strike up conversations, search by topic, browse the newsfeed, and follow your favorite writers. Snippy is a place where everyone is free to express their thoughts, share their opinions, and tell the world what makes them snippy. It's a place where discussion is valued, a place where your opinion matters. It's totally free to join, open to everyone. So join at snippy.com and let your opinion matter. No shadow banning and no suppression of conservative thought ever. Now with an updated user interface and exciting new features, it's also available on the Apple App Store and available on the Android Google Play Store. Snippy is your new alternative social media. So tonight, we've covered a lot of ground. I mean, one of my biggest takeaways um, was that there is nothing that the president can do that would appease Democrats. He literally nominated someone for attorney general that Democrats um, lauded, right, in, in Mr. Barr. They, they previously lauded him. They've, uh, around the, the, uh, the funeral of George H.W. Bush, they lauded him as well. And um, the president decided to bring Mr. Barr in as his attorney general. And you would think that with that George H.W. Bush heritage, and given the fact that they were just talking about how great that, <laughs> that, that period of time was, uh, that they would see a lot of virtue in that decision. Nope. If you watch the hearings today, they did not. They did not. And so what we're seeing is a fundamental breakdown in the way that our government is operating. And I am concerned because I look at what's happening abroad. I look at Britain, for example, where tonight they had a vote on Brexit. And I can see the dysfunction with which their democracy is barely functioning. And I worry now looking at our government shutdown, looking at the uh, obstructionists in the Democratic Party, uh, turning down the president at every turn, even when he tries to do things that they would do, that the Democrats would want to do. For instance, infrastructure spending. When he tries to come to the table with solutions the Democrats should love, with nominations the Democrats should love, they say no. They cry foul. They say that he's a racist. I mean, this is not hyperbole anymore. This is the reality in which we're living. And so I look at that example of Brexit and how dysfunctional they are and how they're about to potentially toss out their prime minister over this Brexit vote. And I'm like, gosh, Western democracy is in trouble. And it's clear why. The common thread through all of this is that there has been a push to populist nationalism. There's been a push to give voice to... Uh, to the people of their own, uh, to put your own country first. In the case of Britain, to put Britons first. And in the case of America, to put Americans first. And that's been rejected wholesale by the establishments of both parties, by the establishment of uh, the Labour Party in the UK, and by the establishment of the Conservative Party in the UK, by the establishment of the Democrat and Republican parties here in the United States. 
And as long as those establishments refuse to recognize that there's been a tectonic shift in geopolitics under their feet, and they didn't see it coming in either the case of Brexit or President Trump until they realize that this has happened, until they come to terms with why it happened, until they start listening, until they start listening to voters, they won't understand it. They think that these things were flukes. And I believe in the case of American politics that they will be proven wrong in 2020 when President Trump is reelected. Remains to be seen what happens in the UK. I mean, they've got a big mess on their hands. Big mess. Much bigger than the one that we have. But it gives me pause because there's not enough listening. What we see instead is that those establishments try to write off these movements, which um, are really the, the, the product of years of neglect by the establishment of middle-class people. As long as they continue to, to neglect them, you know, I think that people are going to get even madder. This problem won't go away. You can stick your head in the sand. But you know what? The middle class in the West is being destroyed. And they look at what's happening with mass migration, gutting their wages, and they say, what in the world is happening here? Why? You know, like, like I'm crying out for a job, right? And I'm crying out for better wages. I want my kids to have the opportunities that I thought that they would have, that I had. And I think they're going to have a worse off chance. They're looking beyond migration. They're looking towards automation. They have a lot of anxiety about, is my job going to be anxiety? Is my job going to be automated? That's another problem. Beyond that, you know, they're looking towards um, the way that, uh, you know, the, the people in, uh, are, are native people in, in their own countries have been subjugated. They're like, enough of this. I, you know, just because I'm a, a white male doesn't mean that I have at all benefited from a, a patriarchy, right? I mean, I, I'm out there struggling every day. Don't write off my problems and concerns as less than, than, than others. And so this is a time of a lot of pain and transition, and I hope the establishments of both parties wake up and realize that they need to do a lot more listening. Anyway, I'll be back soon. I really appreciate Buck for his time tonight, and I thank you for listening. If you want to follow me, I'm on Twitter, at Harlan, H-A-R-L-A-N. Have a good night. This is the Buck Saxton Show.